Hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. We have young Eli here playing DJ and a very, very special guest today, uh, Mr. Craig Alexander, the King of Kona, I believe. <laughs> Alexander the Great, they call you. Uh, apparently once upon a time. Thank you very much um, for being on here. I know you're extremely busy and you just finished a swim session. Yeah, I'm still, even though I'm a, an elder statesman now, I turned 45 in a couple of months, I still... I race a little bit, not as seriously, but um, oh yeah, I've got a race scheduled to come up in ten days. I had one a week and a half ago up in China, so um, I don't, I don't, I'm not on the circuit full time like I used to be, but I still do love. I mean, it's part of my, part of my blood, part of my life, the training and the racing. I, I'm very competitive, so as I said, it's not my day to day priority anymore. But when I get the chance and I get openings in the schedule, I like to ramp the training up for six or eight weeks and go and jump in and do a few races mostly around asia these days asia pacific region tell me something you said uh you know you're not taking it as serious or whatever but i know you just did a swimming session before you came out to us how far did you swim i swam 5k 5000 meters so i i wouldn't say i'm not taking it as seriously when i'm training it's all business i only know one way to do it it's just i guess what's different for me now through my 20s and 30s and even into my early 40s the whole year was scheduled around my racing. Um, I would sit down, our biggest race was October, so I'd sit down at the end of October and then plan the next 12 months. Uh, And everything was scheduled around high performance and performing at my best at the big races. Um, And it was a 12 months of the year, 24 hour a day proposition. Um, You know, you can't, I think physically and also mentally, you can't sustain that forever. And I've had 20, I think this is my 24th or 25th year racing as a professional athlete. As I said, I still love it, but I have three kids. Um, you know, happily married. My wife put her career on hold so we could travel and follow the circuit for two decades. And she loves her job. She's an emergency nurse and um, starting to be a midwife. So she's getting back into that. And um, yeah, I've just had to find different ways to balance it now that it's not the priority. But when I race, I, I race to win and I, I prepare to get in the, the very best shape I can. So I wouldn't say I'm not serious. It's just not all-consuming like it used to be. Okay. Tell me about this title, the King of Kona. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the major races in our sport is the Hawaiian Ironman um, on the Big Island. And the race centers around the township of Kona. Um, and I was fortunate to race there eight times and and win it three times so i had three victories there you had three victories which is amazing from what i understand i i I did a few triathlons back in there extremely poorly they almost they almost cancelled it but i did a few um and i'm not one of those people that's going to say i can relate to it because but almost drowned a few times doing them um so i can't imagine the distances that you guys are covering so the Kona Trail in, in in the triathlon, from what I understand, is a particularly difficult one. Is it got the reflective heat? Is that yeah? So in our sport, there's I guess it's we have different distances. You have the sprint distance, which is it's roughly a one hour race. Then you have what's called the Olympic distance, which is just short of a two hour race. Half Ironmans and full Ironman distance. So a full Ironman is a three point eight k swim, hundred and eighty k bike ride, and then a full marathon at the end. And there's a series globally, and it culminates with the World Champs, which is in Hawaii every year. So that race in Hawaii is, um, it's renowned for being the toughest, I think, because of the conditions, the heat and humidity you get in Hawaii, plus the trade winds. Um, it can be very, very windy there. The geography of the course, it's, it's not a flat course, it's quite a hilly course. And because it's the World Championships, that's 
um, the best field that you face all year. So, um, so you won that three times, but correct me if I'm wrong, are you the only person to win it back-to-back? I was the fourth. No, there'd been, there's been four of us. Four, on the men's side, four of us. So I was the first. Actually, I think there's five now because a German guy just recently did it. I did it in 08 and 09. And I was the fourth to do it. There'd been three Americans. One one guy, Dave Scott, did it in the 80s. Another guy, Mark Allen, did it in 89 and 90. He went on to win six, actually. He was incredible. Um, and the last to do it before me was another American, Tim DeBoom, who did it in 01 and 02. So. But Dave Dave Scott, is he's the guy that said that you're the first real champion of the sport. Am I, is, is that, or am I misquoting him? No, he, he did say it. He said I was, he thought I was the first true champion. He's, he's a good mate of mine, so. No, nah, but still like, <laughs> yeah, no, I've got good friends. Nobody said fabulous, first <laughs> true champion of triathlon. So how did that, why, and I'm not, I'm not saying you weren't, I just want to know how that came yeah, about. Yeah, I think he just liked my style of racing and he liked the way I carried myself and he thought I embodied everything that, um, yeah, it's, it's like anything, I guess, like in the UFC, once you've been the world champ it's kind of like a it's a club or a brotherhood that you're always a part of and nobody ever takes that away from you and there's sort of a mutual respect amongst the guys and the girls who have done it it's the same I think it's the same in a lot of sports certainly in our sport a lot of the the past champions or most of them they go to watch every year um, they take a keen interest in, in who the new guys and girls are coming through and um, Dave lives in Boulder, Colorado, and that had been my, my training base for a long time. So I got to know him, and yeah, I, he just became a fan of mine. And that was a, yeah, I, I, I remember when he said that, it was very humbling because he, he was a great champion. He won six times in the 80s. Um, and, you know, our sport's a lot of things now. It's evolved. It's recently got status in the Olympic Games. Um, but for a long time, that race in Hawaii was was the sport of triathlon for, for 20 or 30 years. I know it's its 40th anniversary this year, so we only recently got status as an Olympic sport. Um, but that race in Hawaii was the one race really that took our sport to a wider audience. You know, it was on the wide world of sports and it was on TV and and people might not know the sport of, of triathlon. It's a niche sport, but they a niche sport, but they had heard of the Hawaiian Ironman. So um, it's kind of an iconic event. And yeah, I, I guess I was... I, I, maybe I flatter myself in saying it, but in modern day, Dave and Mark, they won multiple times in the 80s and 90s and that hadn't happened. Um, our Canadian Peter Reid won three times in the late 90s and then I, I was lucky enough to win three, uh, 08, 09 and 2011. So I guess that's where the title came from and that's where all um, those nice comments from, from some of the past champions came from as well. Tell me if you can articulate, I know it'd be... What, what goes on in your mind or does anything go on in your mind in, in particular like I don't know tell me if you could tell me at the start of the race because I'm, I'm always curious about this you know like at the start of the race when you go I've got this whole thing to do the middle of the race where you're probably hurting a lot and you know that you've got the rest of it and then um, that final kick where you, the pain must be excruciating what goes on through your mind yeah I think like a lot of sports there's such a huge mental component they're not just physical um, I'm sure you see it all the time you have people with amazing physicality and a skill set but you need a, you need an extra piece of the puzzle that that mindset that mentality um, and that discipline through the training but but in particular on game day, on race day, um, you need to be able to execute, make smart decisions under pressure. And 
You know, my training, I used to train a lot on my own. I, I felt that helped me mentally prepare, um, toughened me up mentally being being alone for those long seven, eight-hour training days. And that's when I'd visualize the race a lot and mentally rehearse and think about the race. On race day itself, as you said, the, the distances are so daunting. I mean, even having raced in Hawaii eight times, to think of those covering those distances can be off-putting, you know. So... I used to keep it very, very simple. On on race day, I'd have breakfast, do my warm up, and I'd make sure all my equipment, everything was in order. And, and when I'd walk down to the swim start, the only thing I was thinking about was the first two or three minutes of the race. You know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? The gun's going to go off, and what do I have to do in the first two or three minutes? So I was very clear in my head of what I had to do, where I wanted to position, what are the guy, who are the guys I wanted to be near, what were the conditions, what was the current and the tide doing, where I needed to be positioned, and how I was going to execute that first two or three minutes. So I was very sure about that. Um, I think, you know, mentally humans, we're, we're an interesting case study because the mind is your most powerful ally, but it's also your greatest enemy. And you can you can second guess things, you can... You can undermine your own confidence if you overthink things. I thought I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it very, very simple on race day and make sure that I'm right in the moment when the gun goes off. I know exactly where I need to be positioned, how I need to execute, and then the day will just unfold. So I would break the race down into little achievable sections. You know, in the swim, do a systems check. Am I in the front group? Am I, am I where I need to be? How's my pacing? Who am I around? Um, you know, coming towards the end of the swim as well, that the pace used to pick up a little bit, make sure I was positioned well, and, and then thinking about going through transitioning and the, and the start of the bike segment. So I, would, I wouldn't I would want to inundate or overload my, my head with too many things to think about, but keep it very, very simple. And, you know, it's a funny thing. People would often say, well, what do you think about it? It's an eight-hour race. And it's funny to say it, but it used to go quickly. I think because you'd, you'd raced it so many times in your head and you'd rehearsed so many times and... I'd done a lot of reconnaissance training on the course. I knew the, I knew the course really well. Um, the conditions, where the wind usually blew from, at what time of the day. Also who my, my main competitors were for, for each year. Um, and it's almost, I liken it to driving a car. When you first learn to drive a car, you, you're overwhelmed with everything you need to do. Clutch in, put it in gear. Who's around me? Can I, do I, who has right of way? And after a while, when you become good at it, it's almost... It's autonomous. It's subconscious, exactly. And, and I think that's what it becomes in sport as well. When you, when you become very proficient at something, it, it's, it is autonomous. You know, you're thinking about your pacing, your, your nutrition, your hydration, and all those things without actually thinking about them. So it's not like your clock watching and the seconds are ticking away. So I just used to break the race down into little achievable segments and just check them off one at a time. You have to. Oh, by the way, you got water there if you need yeah, water. Thank you. I'm just letting you. Know. <laughs> um, I think, guys, when you train with some dudes, because I see it like with Rob and other ones of our fighters, there's guys that, um, or in wrestling or grappling, there's guys that, at in training, they train and they beat the world champion. Like if they were, yep. if if you could <clears throat> give a belt out that day, you would give it out and say you're the world champ. But they don't turn up. Is that does that happen in triathlon? Being that it's such a long race. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even the shorter races. And I think that happens in all sports, you know, because through my sport, I've got to meet great athletes from other sports and, and you start telling tales and sharing stories. And that seems to be a common theme. There's, 
and I know as an older athlete now, I'm, I, I love the sport so much. I, I pay attention to who the young guys and girls are coming through. And if you see a name pop up or you're at a race and you see a great performance, you think, you know, I'll, I'll follow that kid and see see how they get on. And But particularly in training, I've trained with that many athletes who swim, bike and run at a world-class level. And you think, how am I going to beat this person? And then, you know, you go to a race and that person blends in with the other hundred that you're trying to beat so you're not really thinking about them and you execute your race your performance and and after the fact you think whatever happened to so-and-so i mean you know and i just i just think that's what is it that cripples them i think it's the mind i yeah, think but, but what i guess like what what aspect like there are certain guys like that i see they come alive under the lights you know mate it's a rare talent it's a, it's a rare trait that and pe- that's, that exists in your sport even yeah. though it's such a distant sport yeah absolutely i, I think people can suffocate under the pressure as well uh, or the expectation if if you're an athlete who everyone's been talking about you know did you see so and so look how good they've been going in training and and then that weight of expectation that cripples some people other people thrive on that and they're the ones who thrive when the lights are the brightest um i I have seen it i've seen it a lot and I, i just think it's it's the final piece of the puzzle that any athlete in any sport whether it be a skill-based sport, an endurance-based sport, you, you need the ability to perform your best when it matters the most. It's one thing to do it in a sparring session, in the middle of heavy training, or you know, at a regular swim squad, three months out from a race, a month out, a week out. I mean, you, you need... And you've got to race under the same conditions because you might have done a 5K swim and then we do something tonight. I was going to say, and I beat you, which I won't. But I might. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, no, absolutely. I, I used to train. I used to train with when I was up in Boulder. A lot of the endurance sport communities up there, and I used to train with a lot of guys who I was competing with for medals at world championships. And some days they would get the better of you. And I, I think you just need to be mentally strong enough to say, well, first of all, that that guy's a great athlete. Second of all, I'm in the middle of heavy training, and it's not like I'm doing every session with that person. So the levels of fatigue are a little a little bit different, and and you've just got to have a self-confidence and, and have faith in your process and your plan. And this is the path I'm on. And every now and again, paths cross. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same with you. you 100%. You, you, you want to outsource and get guys in for Rob to train with, world-class guys, because there's no point having a world champ training with okay. someone who's going to dominate. He's got to be tested and pushed. And But that person might be fresh. They might not be in heavy training. Or I think the athlete needs to have the confidence to know that this is part of the process but it's not the end of the story. Just and, and, and you have bad sessions sometimes too. You have bad days. I mean, you have bad performances. You and, can lose, and that's part of training. That's 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 part of any sport. I think it's it's accumulating the work over time and building the fitness, building towards the performance, but also just getting on with it. You know, you have a great day in training. So what? You have a bad day. So what? You move on. Get on, your mind right and move on. On that, when you when you win a big race, what do you do? Do you celebrate party? Do you go off the rails? No, I don't, I don't go off the rail. I mean, I, I... Do you wake up in some other country un, <laughs> unaware of the people around you? When I was younger, maybe once <laughs> or twice. Um, I think, you know, the latter part of my career and, and through the world championships that I won, I always had my wife and family there. So, and particularly that race, like we would base in Colorado and then we'd come back to sea level and... Um, I'd always go to Kona three or three and a half weeks out to acclimate for the heat and humidity as well because Boulder's very dry. It's hot, but it's very dry. 
um, so a little bit different. Um, but a lot of our family, my family and my wife's family, would come from Australia to to watch the race. So I would just I'd share it with them. I mean, I think you know, I was fortunate to win five world titles, and when you win the first one, it's amazing. It's it's hard to put into words, but you've dreamt about it and you visualized it, and then when it happens, you think, did that really happen, or was it? Because it's exactly how I saw it in my dream, and and I think the first one's a very personal one. It's it's you. It's a validation for all the hard work. After that, I was I was as happy for the people around me. I saw how they, training partners, coaches, family, how much they got out of it and how they enjoyed it and old friends from school who would come to watch. And I would just go out and, and have a few beers with them and celebrate with them. And they were, they were super excited to see it. And um, for me, that was the excitement as well because, you know, you're – as you know, you know, with high-level sport, you sacrifice a lot. You're you're away from home a lot. You're away. You miss weddings and christenings and and family get-togethers and friendships take a back seat. Uh, and they're things that are not lost on you in the hard grind, the daily grind. I often used to think about, you know, what all the lads were doing at home. I knew they would be getting together for someone's wedding or whatever. And you know, they're the sacrifices that you make. And, and I was fortunate a lot of those same people who were important to, to my wife and I would come to the race, so I'd always celebrate with them. Um, the thing about that race in Hawaii, though, it's such a hard race. I mean, it's an eight-hour day in a, in a hot, humid climate. The race started at, I think, 6.30 or 7 in the morning. I used to get up about 2.30 to have breakfast, and you, so you didn't get much sleep the night before. You would then race. Do the race, you would go to medical. Usually, I'd get a couple of liters of fluid put back in intravenously in the medical tent, go to the doping control, press conference. You wouldn't get home until eight or nine o'clock at night and, and you couldn't sleep because you were that full of sugar and adrenaline and I mean, you've been feeling on gels and, and things like that all day long. I never slept the night after one of those long races. Um, so then the next day, and then the next day, normally your sponsors would call in promotional appearances. So I'd always have a photo shoot or two the sponsors used to love the scenery and the imagery in Kona, like the, I guess the turquoise ocean and the black, the black top of the lava. Yeah. It was a great spot, and it was synonymous with that race too. So we used to do a lot of photo shoots early the day after the race, and then you have the awards that day. But you would—that's when you would typically go out. Everyone would get together um, after the awards presentation and go and have a few drinks and with your family, but also with with your competitors. You know, I, I've raced a lot of them for two decades some of them and become friends and you know you swap war stories but certainly as I got older particularly in my mid to late 30s and those long races they they just wear you down and you're happy that it's over and you, you certainly want to go out and celebrate a great performance but you, you can't wait to, to log a, a solid eight hour sleep as well man just the day that he was saying you like it's like I've had days where I don't sleep and come to work and I'm like, I'm done, you know? Yeah. Um, the thing I was, one of the things we discuss always, not just with Rob, but a few of the other guys that we train, um, I don't know, tell me what you think or because some of the stuff you're saying sort of resonates quite clearly with me. One of the things to, to take away from that pressure is we try not to attach an emotional connotation to a win or a loss. So say, for example, try and have the same people around you yeah. that you're going to have if you win or if you lose. Like if you win and then, of course, you know, when Rob won the world title, we were geniuses. The coaches were geniuses. And the um, Rob was, like he, he gained about 4,000 friends overnight, you know. Yeah. 
So, but we kept the celebration with the same people that would yeah. have been there had he, with the celebration was like tame. We ate and had dinner and that was it. With the same people that would have been there had he have lost. Yep. But I see a lot of athletes, they, if they win, they're at the, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying our formula, which is what it is. Like it's not better, it's not worse, just what we do. Um, I see a lot of athletes, they attach, they win, they're at the club, partying, etc. And if they lose, they're sitting by themselves. Yeah, no, I, I love that mentality. It's something I've always adopted as well. I think, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that um, success is never final and failure is never fatal. So, you know, I, I guess Rob sees it all the time. A, a good, I guess, rule of thumb is that, it, particularly when you do a sport that's global, like, like the UFC, you know, mixed martial arts, you're never as good as people say you are and you're never as bad as they say you are. 100%. So that, that consistency of having the same people around, I think it's super important. I mean, any sport, and we mentioned it before, whether it's skill-based or endurance-based speed, but whatever, it's a long process. You don't, you don't wake up one day, take up a sport and be a world champ at the end of the week. It's a long road that's got its peaks and troughs. There's a lot of emotional highs and lows and the very nature of the fact that it's a long journey means it's just a consistent grind. And I think it's... And that wears people down. It, it does wear people down. And I think the very nature of the fact that it's such a long journey means that you need to be able to sustain a high output for a long period of time. And to do that, you need to put in place great strategies so that you can maintain a high output for a long period of time. But you need to surround yourself with a great team that's there in the wins and the losses. You need that consistency in the team as well. Who's your team? My team, I think any athlete's team starts at home with the family. With me, it's my wife. I mean, we've been married 20 years. We've been together. We met just before I started doing triathlon, so she's been there the whole journey. And our extended family, both both her family and my family have been very supportive. And over the years I've had, for me, that's the core of the team. And then I've had unbelievable, I've just had so much luck. I've had access to guys like Dave Scott, past champions who've become mentors and advisors. So I've had great coaches, mentors, advisors, training partners, and they're just another layer on the team. And I think the more great layers you have, the stronger the team, and it needs to be strong because it's gonna, it's gonna have to weather some storms, as you, as you know. And it's, yeah. Whether it be poor performances, things that are in your control, sometimes things out of your control, politics within your sport, injuries that are sometimes out of your control. Um, you need a good core, a solid core team around you. And I think if you look, it's always, I always think it's, it's interesting to look at great case studies from, you know, super successful athletes and other sports. Look, Roger Federer is a classic example. I mean, very stable family life. His mum and dad come and travel and watch a lot of his tournaments. Um, he's, he's had a couple of coaches, not too many, over a 20-year career just a real consistency of character and, and the way he goes about it. And that's not to say sometimes they don't change the approach a little bit, but generally speaking, you know, the way they sit down and plan and the pathway, it's, there's a consistency to that and to the people around. And I think it's important because it's, I mean, I'm sure when Rob won the belt and you guys had what you would consider a quite a sedate celebration, he's thinking, I, I want to defend this thing 10 times. The, the, the journey hasn't ended. 
No, it had barely begun. It's barely begun. And that, yeah. that's the thing. That's why I love that quote, you know, success is never final and failure is never fatal. Just because you win, that's not the end of the journey. That's the start. Just because you take a bad hiding doesn't have to be the end of the journey either. So I think, uh, you know, who Mark Hunt is? Yeah. He said, um, and I, I, I was kind of paraphrasing him, but he said once, um, if you if you can't take a hiding, you you shouldn't be doing this sport. Like you, you, there's a there's an ass whooping around with the corner. With your name on it at <laughs> some point, and um, I think like that's the same as in business. Like you know, people like if you're out there, I'm not like a risk taker, nor do I have the money to be doing it. But if you're that you know, entrepreneur, business dude, and you lose x amount of money and you weren't prepared you didn't understand that there was a risk that you're yeah. going to lose that money then what what are you doing you know there's going to be days where maybe you went out to race and the bike p- punctured yeah. you know what i mean and you lose them two minutes on a, of a race absolutely and i think it's a good analogy in business because i think that's the nature of the way those people are wired they understand there's risk they try and mitigate it and work around it but sometimes you just take a beating now does that mean you fold up the tents and go home or do you believe in what you're doing and 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 you know ante up again so i think in sport you know it's a cliche to say it but often you do learn so much more from the ass whippings yeah 100%. because i know i've won races and everyone's patting you on the back and it's it's wonderful the sponsors are happy people are telling you how what a great performance it was but when you actually dissect it at a later date you think that wasn't that you know there was i had trained to perform here i I actually underperformed i won the race which is great but on the surface that just means you beat everybody else on the start line it doesn't mean you perform the way that you could have or should have and i think it takes a certain personality to be able to look at a win and and take the lessons out of it most people usually take the lessons out of a out of a beating or a loss because it's evident you haven't got the outcome you wanted so but both winning and losing there's always lessons there and, and for me that was the thing I never tied up of course I wanted to win world titles but my goals my sh- particularly my short-term goals were more around the training and the processes to get there um, and I had performance indicators that I wanted to hit along the way um, you know I, I'm not going to sit here and say that when I started my career I, I, I thought I was going to be a world champion I thought I could be very, very good and competitive and I knew the sport appealed to me. Obviously, I had the genetics to do well at it. I loved the work ethic that was involved. Um, that just suited my personality, that grind. I, I, I didn't mind that at all. Um, and I thought I could improve and I didn't know what where the ceiling was going to be but I thought I'm just going to do everything in my power to, to check all the boxes every day and we'll see how far it gets me. And of course, then you get to a point where you're now being competitive and getting top tens and now you're consistently in the top five and now you're on the podium and then your mindset changes a little bit. I think you think, well, okay, I'm in, I'm in the conversation here and you need to, I think at that point, as much take a mental step up. There's, there's, it's, it's very easy and comfortable to be in the top 10 or the top five. I'm sure as Robert T, to be ranked top 10, that, that's comfortable. And it's an amazing achievement. It's an amazing achievement, but it gets comfortable. And then yeah. to be the guy is it's a different mentality altogether and it, it requires a i think a certain mentality to to be able to achieve that but for me i, I thought i just knew it was a long process and i thought I'll, I'll deal with that aspect of actually having to try and be the guy when i get to a point where i'm good enough on my journey i knew that 
I mean, when I first started, I was still at uni 30 hours a week and I had a part-time job and I was racing guys who were full-time professionals, multiple world champions and guys who I'd had their you know, pictures on my wall. I used to rip pictures out of the magazines and um, guys I looked up to. And, you know, I think for me in those early days, it was I was just trying to narrow the gap between where I was and, and where the where the benchmark was. And I thought I could I could get deep into that gap. And for me, that was the journey initially. And then it became apparent I was good enough to get top tens, top fives. And the mindset certainly had to change because, you know, was I content just to be a third or fourth place guy or did I want to be the guy now in the magazines? And that's a decision that you have to make. Because when you're at that top five, like the genetics, the physicality's there. It's just a question of, whether you're going to do the five sessions, or depending, I don't know how many you do a day, is it longer, but are you going to do the amount of sessions you have to do? Are you going to yeah. get to bed on time? Are you going to do the physio stuff? Are you going to miss that wedding? It's all those things because, as you say, the top, and I'm sure it's the same in what you guys do, the top five or eight guys, there's probably not a lot between them in terms Nothing. of their, yeah. So you just what, bob when you should have weaved and tover. And, and so, so, yeah, exactly. So what differentiates? It's... What it is is the finer details at the highest level. You know, you, I think when you get to a very elite level in sport, the steep part of your improvement curve's over, you've plateaued out and you're looking for, you're investing a ton of time and effort to get little incremental changes. Um, and, and, and that becomes the endless pursuit, but you just have to embrace the grind and, and that is what differentiates. For me, that's where I got my confidence from. I thought, I. I remember early on I got called into a a training camp situation with the national team and there was a guy in the team, Greg Welsh, who was my idol. He was the guy I started in the sport. He was the first Australian to win in Hawaii, first non-American ever to win there, Um, four-time world champion from the Shire, um, just a guy I'd seen on television, read about, and I got to training with him, which was just incredible to train with you know a a multiple world champion but it got me to thinking you know just having conversations with him because there were other great athletes why is he the guy winning the world titles and I just watched what he did and it was just the attention to those little details to get the half a percentage point it was the the willingness to sacrifice it was going to bed early it was eating the right things it was it was doing all those little things and forming those good habits day in day out that of themselves in isolation mean nothing but when you do it over six or nine months that extra sleep you get the right diet that extra work in the gym the the stretching routine the the body work it just all adds up and accumulates and so for me there was that aspect I had to make sure I did that but then doing that I got a confidence because I knew I was on the start line and I never used to sit on a start line thinking I'm going to win today but I used to think I could not be in better shape than I am right now right now is the fittest I've ever been. And that was always my goal, to be on a start line saying that. And I thought, I, I think I'm smart enough and tough enough to, to you know, get down and dirty when the going gets tough. But I've done a lot of great work for the last 12 months. I've got myself in the, in the conversation. And, and that's where I got my confidence from, the preparation. One of the things that um, I find interesting, you talk about the preparation, blah, 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 all of that, because, um, and I think that's the... Even though it's, I think people don't really understand it and people don't really see it unless they, they work in that like sort of elite level. But 
also feel that let's assume and that we're all doing that in that top 10 that everyone in the top 10 is doing that and everything one of the other things that and like even recently with rob we've had conversations about this like discussions heated debates whatever you want to call them and now that the training is kind of sort of established it's understanding that there's also life and how you how you manage those mm. two things and i think people think that like you live in like a, some sort of crucible and that you don't have children you don't mm. have work or people say it's easy because like he doesn't have to work and i'm like you think that's not work yeah you know um so a lot of the conversations i guess are sur- that surround like because nothing's changing and i think people don't understand that as well like say for example like your coach your coach might move away your coach your coaches rob's got rob's got four or five main coaches yeah it's four or five different personalities four or five different people different stages of their lives one of the coaches has a kid that takes time away from what they might have had or whatever you know what i mean and i, I think that's now that you know you kind of got the training part right it's balancing life can you elaborate because you've got three kids and that's crucial yeah it's like you say there's there's no patent on the actual knowledge of training a lot of people know in all sports i'm sure there's jiu-jitsu experts all over the world no doubt there are there's stand-up experts there's same My mom can download the Cuban boxing system. You know what I mean? It's not exactly. It's not, not going to matter. Do you know what I mean? So I think the first thing is coming into contact with someone who knows how to teach it for you. And but it's, it, what you, you make such a great point about the um, you know that balance that you've got to find because but as an athlete, being self-aware is very important. Knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. In a team situation, it's also important that all the members of that team understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. And you find a nice, happy medium somewhere because it's not just about knowing the training and doing the training. Like you say, there's a lot of other things. I know at the height of my career, when I won Kona the last time, I got a lot of great sponsorship. And I already had good sponsorship, but it just went to the next level. And sponsorship is, it's not a donation it's a partnership a company gives you money and they want to leverage what you have done to help sell stuff bottom line that's what it is so that means appearances get called in every corner of the globe at the last minute Um, and you know i used to i used to always think that i had a huge responsibility to my sponsors and i did because it is a partnership i didn't want to take their money under false pretenses I wanted to be a great partner and help them achieve what their goals were. But it, it, it brings a classic downfall or pitfall, I think, into focus. And that's when everybody's goals are not perfectly aligned. You get conflict. And my goal was to win another world title. My sponsors, it's not that they didn't want me to win. No. Yeah. But their primary goal is to sell stuff. And get that photo shoot done. And sometimes their goal and my goal conflicted. And you have that in, in family life as well with coaches and kids. And that's why it's so important that you pick the right people to be in your core team. It, it comes back to that. It always does. And hopefully the right life partner. I was so lucky with my wife. She she was completely supportive and invested in my career. She said, you know, if, if we're going to have to go and live 
overseas for four months of the year or five months of the year, that's what we'll do. And if we're going to make these sacrifices, we're going to do it right. So you tell me everything that you need to happen. So I'd say, yeah, I mean, at the height of my career, I was training between six or nine hours a day. I'd need a, a nap in the afternoon. She'd time it so that the kids would nap when I would nap or when I would nap, she would take them out. It's, it's, it's down to those little details that it has to be choreographed. And it's, it's so easy when you have a lot in the team, four or five coaches, to, to get the balance wrong. And, you know, hopefully everyone's got a mutual respect. And if the, goals are, if the goals are perfectly aligned, usually it works out. And if there's a mutual respect and trust, because any problems can be sat down and, and talked through. Um, I think the problems really come into focus when goals are not perfectly aligned. For argument's sake, Rob wants to, Rob wants to keep the title for five years and be undefeated. One of his coaches might think, oh, it's, it's good enough for me and my business that he's just in title fights. And I'm not saying that happens, but no, no, no. But I get you, what under, you, mean. you understand the analogy I'm trying yeah. to make. If if the goals aren't perfectly aligned, then the focus, the drive, is just going to be off. You know what's a big one? I think with that, um, we don't have this problem, but I, I see it with um, other athletes in, in in combat sports. Like, let's say, and this is a, just a number I'm picking out. The the athlete wins X amount of money. And the coach's cut is 10% of that. Uh, for arguments, I just made these figures up. Yeah. Um, and the athlete fights and the coach, and I see this with people, I can see it like clearly. They, they don't even understand. The athlete wants to fight again because they want to fight like you want to race. Yeah. Athlete wants to fight again because he wants that money. And the coach goes... Fuck it, why not? Mm. I'm gonna get ten percent. Yeah. And and I can see that yeah. to the point that like you can you I meet the dudes and I'm like, you're that guy. Yeah. And it's I, almost a conflict of interest. It's it's they should have the fight as dude, well. They should being. be locked up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the other mm. thing I think with that, look, always with Rob, we always talk about that because we always talk about like and you seem like you 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 you're you're like this too. Like say for example, you know when you when you're a kid and you read the choose your own adventure books? Yeah. And so you, you get to this point. And you make this decision six months ago or, or two years ago. You made this decision. So now when the next two decisions come up, they're over here and then they're over here. Yeah. So if you made, you start to make all these wrong decisions and you get to this point and some dude misses weight by three kilos, which can happen. Mm. He may as well be in a different weight division, but you don't have any money left because you didn't do the right thing by your sponsors. You didn't take time out to maybe start another little business or something. So now you're doing an extremely dangerous sport for money. Mm. Do you know what it's I mean? It's a bad reason to do it. Yeah, and, and you're, you're getting to a point where you made all these bad decisions and it looks like now you have either, I take the fight, I take the fight at a risk at my career and my safety, or B, I don't get paid. And then my family suffers. Hmm. And when you look at it as a binary, just those two, you're like, well, you have to take the fight. But you need to cut it off well before it gets to that. Yeah, like, yeah. do you see that in your sport? I think you see it in, in a lot of sports, in our sport as well too, people over-race. And those long races, you can really only do one or two a year. But people do more, and the outcome's going to be the same when you do too many. I mean, you look at elite marathon runners, they run one or two a year. They do a lot 
of other shorter races but yeah I, I think and that's where again it comes back to surrounding yourself with good people that's the as an athlete that's the best and most important thing you can do because when you have people who have shared goals and they love you and have your best interests at heart you're not going to get down to that binary decision they're going to cut it off way back here so um but yeah i I know how easy it cascades and you get to that point where you feel like you're painted into a corner and you have to make a bad decision like racing with injury or or things like that and and that could end your career absolutely you can't race with a bung leg for 180 k's or whatever it is that you're doing no absolutely And, and that's why i think too you know someone who's coaching a fighter for argument's sake if they really have a great relationship they're never going to put that fighter in danger they they love that person they're going to say you know what you're not you're not taking this fight on a short turnaround we're not doing it we're going to stick to what we've always done let you recover from the last one and and i think that's it's a great analogy that you make because i think it happens in all sports where if you're not controlling the day-to-day things can and i used to love those choose your own adventure books by the way (laughs) They, they they were cool but things can get out of control and get can get to a point where you've now committed to a fight or a race and they've promoted it and you can't back out and it's the wrong decision. You 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 really need to cut it off well before it gets to that point. I want to ask you something because uh, so let's say the Hawaiian Ironman, like you said, three point eight k swim, hundred eighty k ride, forty two kilometer run. So I would have trouble covering that in a car, <laughs> that distance in a car. You go in there undercooked, underprepared. It can be a financial nightmare from a sponsor's perspective. <clears throat> and uh, I imagine that the injuries could be quite career-ending even. What, what kind of injuries are we looking at? You know, for endurance athletes, it's mainly overuse, repetitive injuries like stress fractures. Uh, I've got to be honest, my whole career I've been, well, I want to say lucky, but I've also worked hard just on functional movement and and core stability, core strength and stability. I think in in anything that requires sort of repetitive movement like swimming or cycling or running, good functional movement's important not only for injury prevention but also for efficiency and performance. So I was always, and I was lucky as I said, I had that physio degree behind me so I knew the importance of core strength and stability, good functional movement, not only, as I said, for injury prevention, but also for for better performance. So I have had a lot of enforced layoffs. I had the chicken pox. Um, you have it as an adult? Yeah. Do you know that's why Rob pulled out of that fight? Yes, yeah. Uh, Justin told me so. How awesome is chicken pox as an adult? Mate, it's awful. <laughs> it, it's awful. It's any of those liver viruses. They just sit you on your ass for a long time. Um, yeah, I was, I was wanting to go to the Commonwealth Games in Manchester in 02, and I was on the train on squad. I think there were six or seven of us and now we're going to trim it down to the final team of three and just before the first selection race i got it. my wife's an emergency nurse so i always blame her i said she brought it home from work but yeah i just i ended up having a lot of time off training and and then three years after that i'd had a great season in the u.s won a lot of big races but at the end of the season i got a another liver virus called cmv cytomegalovirus okay and that was the same deal it just sat me on my ass for about two or three months Do you know how you got that um, the doctors weren't sure. They they said it could be in a dirty swimming pool. Of course, I'm in pools all the time. Um, I don't. They didn't really. They weren't too specific. And at the time, I didn't really like. They weren't sure. So I thought, you know, is there any way I can prevent 
getting it again. They said, well, chances are you won't. Now that you've had it, you'll build up the antibodies to it. So your main focus should just be on rehabilitation now and getting healthy again. It's very unlikely that you'll ever contract this virus again. So um, I want to ask you something. You know, we talk about like getting sick, repetitive stress. Is it true that for someone like yourself, you will ride on a push bike over the course of a year, something like 25,000 Ks? Probably more, probably more. I mean, I know I used to do, I never really- Think ta- about that figure, what I just said. It's a lot. I know pro, pro professional bike riders, they reckon they're at about 50,000. For the year? 50,000 for the year, yeah. So average is almost 1,000 a week. It's a lot. That's it's about five hours riding a day. And some guys probably a bit more. No, there'd be, there'd be a lot who do more for sure, yeah. So, so there could be guys that are professional cyclists, not triathletes, but professional cyclists, they might do 60 or 70,000 Ks a year? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I, the, you always get those outliers who do more and they, they're they mentally strong enough to do it. It's part of the confidence that they feel they need. They get confidence from doing more and they're durable enough to be able to do more. So um, I know when I was training for the longer races, I would do two five-week blocks in a year where I would, I'd hit seven or 800 K a week on the bike for that four or five weeks, along with about 25 K swimming and 140 of running. But that's not sustainable. in a week. In a week, yeah. It's it's not sustainable all year, so I'd do it in four or five week blocks. Well, when you say it's not sustainable, you would feel it in your joints, you would feel it in your immune system. Where, where, how would you feel? I think it? your immune system would, would, your adrenals, everything would suffer. I felt I needed to overload to that degree, particularly early. I'd raced as a professional for 13 or 14 years before I stepped up to the longer distance. So when I stepped up, a lot of the guys I were racing who were contending for the title in Hawaii They'd already been racing there for five or eight years. So I felt I had their speed, but I didn't have the endurance that they had. So I, that's why I had that, particularly early in my Ironman career, I had those intensive training blocks, four or five week blocks. And mentally you couldn't sustain it. I just think you would go crazy because it just became all about, you would wake up, train, eat, go and train, come back, eat, rest, physio, gym, come back, sleep, go and train again, come back, eat, go to bed. That that was your life. Your wife must be an absolute champion, man. Because if you're doing those distances, you are useless. You <laughs> get home and like... Oh, mate, you... She was amazing. I mean, no we... discussion about her day. No. <laughs> like, it, it becomes a very, very selfish existence. And that's part of the reason why I stepped away from that longer distance racing. Because it was just... It was all consuming and I had seven years of it. Um, and we talked about it and she was super supportive every year and she was happy for me to continue on if I wanted to but I just felt it, was, it wasn't healthy at some point I was going to have to step away from the longer racing anyway again it comes back to what you mentioned before it's about finding a balance you know I now am a father with three kids the oldest is in high school I'm coaching my son's soccer team or helping to coach I want to be more involved with that I've raced as a professional for 24 years. I had seven great years, eight races in Hawaii. I still want to be involved in the sport, but not at that level anymore. Because I just think from an emotional and mental health standpoint, it's, it's it, for me personally, it wouldn't have been sustainable to keep doing it because it would have been at the expense of my family and I felt guilty enough anyway. And it was my job. It was my job. And, and that's what Neri always said to me. She said, if we're going to do it, you've got to do it right. So I always had those words ringing in my ears thinking, should I just stay home with the family? No, I've got to do that extra gym session. I would, I would always do it. I would always do what needed to be done because I always had Neri's words ringing in my ear. If you're going to do it, 
and we're going to make these sacrifices. The only thing we want from you is to do it, to do it right. I said, okay, well, you have that commitment and that promise. I'll, I won't cut corners. I'll never miss sessions. I'll, I'll do what has to be done. But then, as a father and a husband, you think, shit. You know, it's, it was forty to forty two, three hours of actual training a week. Then you throw in the, I was getting dry needling, Cairo, massage on top of that. And I mean, my wife was amazing. I would, two days a week I had this session I used to do. I used to do this six hour ride and then run an hour off the bike. Six hour ride. <laughs> well, it, up in the mountains, believe it or not, it's, it goes quick. Up in Colorado where we lived near Boulder, I used to have this 200K loop, which would take me six hours. And it was, it was magnificent riding, not like riding around the city. Then I'd get home, run off the bike. I'd walk in the door. Neri had been down the service station, two bags of ice in the tub. I'd be in the ice bath. She'd bring in a protein shake. I mean, she was every part of my success. But you have to have that. Yeah, it's it's not negotiable. You have to have it. Not only from the standpoint of she would she was managing my career day to day in terms of the sponsorship staff and making sure I didn't miss on any of that. But just the ice baths, the protein, everything, just everything. Um, you, it's non-negotiable. You need that support logistically, someone doing those things, but also emotionally knowing that it felt like we were a team and you know we're all in it together. And there was never any resentment or, resentment or bitterness. It was, she was totally supportive the whole time and still is to this day. And that's why I could go out and go the extra yard all the time because I knew I had their support and they had my back the whole time. How do you you, 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 were, you went to Ashfield? Ashfield Boys High, yep. yeah. And you played soccer growing up? I did, yeah. What level soccer did you play? I played, I got up to youth league. So I played for Arpia Leichhardt for a couple of years, did a pre-season with Sydney Olympic and loved it. It was my, I played soccer from about five or six until I was 20 and it's still my my main sporting love. I love, I love the game. Um, but at which point did you go... I, like at which point with the whole thing did you go you know what I'm I'm a very good runner because I, I imagine that you would that would w- w- did you swim growing up I did I played a little bit of water polo in high school that and is such a hard sport it is a hard sport don't. it's a great rough sport too yeah uh, and did um, did a little bit of swim club my brother was um, mainly the swimmer in our family and but from my soccer training I was very very fit so every year at athletics and cross country I would win a lot of races and go through to, to zone and regional and often I'd make it to state and then I'd come up against the guys who did actually run and train. But, um, you know, my, 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 my dream was to, to play in the Premier League for soccer and I think what happened was, well, I probably wasn't good enough to be honest, but there was a lot of guys I came through with who ended up playing for the young Socceroos and, I mean, Youth League at that time was... Um, really competitive and I guess it still is now that's it was, it was the breeding ground for a lot of the guys who went into at that point what was NSL. called the NSL yeah, yeah I have cousins that played yeah so so I was at Arpia Leichhardt for a few seasons and um, dabbled with as I said I went and did a pre-season with Sydney Olympic and also one with Canterbury Marrickville and I think what I didn't understand at the time was at that time in Australia the, the teams were very were based around ethnic origins so Olympic was a Greek team Arpia was an Italian, Italian team, team and, yeah. and I didn't mind that at all I a lot of my mates they were all my mates you know that's who I grew up with I um, who I played soccer with and they were the guys I used to knock about with they were all my, my good mates but I, I there was politics from team selections and, and stuff that went on in the club 
And I think as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, you don't really understand a lot of that. And, you know, I just... I think soccer's pretty bad like that. Yeah. I, I, think, I, don't, I don't know what it's like now, but I grew up playing soccer as well. Yeah. No, I only played till I was about 13 or 14, but uh, I have cousins that, that played, like I said, that went all the way through. Yeah. And I could see it, especially looking back, you can see it. Yeah, I think it was just it was just the way it was. I th- probably in all sports at the time, I don't know, but I, I got to about 16 turning 17 and my it, it was testing how much I loved it. I loved the sport but I just didn't understand a lot of this other stuff and um, I ended up going back to play for my local club team which I hadn't played for for about seven years and then yeah just drifted out of the sport when I was 20. Well I actually, I actually had a job I was laboring for a builder and I hurt myself I had to have an operation I got two hernias. Um, yes yeah, so I stopped all sport for about six months and then after that I just started jogging to get back in shape and that that's what really led me into into triathlons and i'd always been interested actually i'd always been interested in i'd always watch triathlons the hawaiian ironman on television and also i used to love the cool and get a goal the surf ironman race yeah, i used yeah. to love those sort of long distance multi-discipline races i used to watch triathlons on tv and see greg welsh and mckeely and a few others a couple of aussies who were winning races all all around the world so I, I saw those races on television so i was always interested in it but didn't really start in it until my early 20s but yeah, soccer was my my. It still is my sporting love. I love the game. I I um I have a question for you here with this because I grew up playing soccer and basketball, and um I wasn't like anything spectacular either one, but you know through that I ended up doing the sports that I'm involved with now, and um, looking back, I think um, I as much as I might have enjoyed the camaraderie of team sports and whatnot. But looking back, I think um, even like, you know how I said to you that I did some triathlons? Yep. And it's that sort of became, because I started the grappling sports relatively later, like relatively, like 18, 19 years old. But uh, when, I, when I did the triathlons, I think they, become, they became the conduits for me to do um, more grappling, more individual sports. Yeah. And now looking back, you know, with self-reflection, I realized like, I was probably always more inclined towards an individual sport. I liked when we did like, when we played soccer or when we did like basketball and you did like some cross training and you had to go out and run. Like, you know, when you did stuff like that for soccer, I always liked that. I liked yeah. being by myself. And when you were saying like, you would do the six, seven hour stuff, like, and you liked being by yourself, I can relate to that. Yeah. Probably it shouldn't have taken me six hours. The ride was probably two hours, but because I was doing it with some young guys that um, uh, I don't know if you if where he's ended up in triathlon, but he was a gun at that age. His name's uh, Jonathan Grady. Do you know this? I do. I know the name. Yes, I do. He he did. He got to quite a high level. I, I'm not sure what's happened to him more recently, but I do remember seeing his name at a lot of races. Well, that kid, we were. Uh, I'm not going to say we were in the same. We were in the same squad, but he was like at the top end yeah. and I was like yeah, he was an elite athlete he man, was good so I was training with those kids so they would go out and do like a three hour ride and I'd be left like literally it'd take me five hours to do it but I enjoyed what you say now the grind of it like I enjoyed for, I don't know what's wrong with me I don't know you, you this part but I actually enjoyed it and I enjoyed the fact of going like I'm not as good as them but I, I'm 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 gonna fucking finish it. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? And I think with like sports like grappling and wrestling, particular wrestling, I think like you can be a shit wrestler, but like you'll go somewhere and people will be like, Oh, you wrestle. 
And because they understand that even if you're shit, even if you're not good, even if you don't have the genetics for it, like to be on the mat and get thrown around. It's for, tough. Yeah, for two hours, like to get like yeah. thrown a few times, like they go, oh, I respect. You yeah. Know? Even yep. worse, probably if you're a shit wrestler. You know <laughs> yeah. Because I mean? like, you're, you're, you're the nail, not the hammer. No, I agree. I think in some respects we choose sports, but sports choose us as well. Do you think that you deep down or unconsciously had a, like a, a prevalence towards individual sports? I think, I, I, like you, I did love the camaraderie of team sports. I did. But I, I yeah, I, I've never minded being on my own and I think my personality suits individual sports for sure. Um, so, yeah, I didn't mind the long training hours on my own. I didn't like, I didn't mind competing on my own. Um, I always knew I had that team behind me. That, that's the other thing. I find that in individual sports, I don't know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just going to ask you something because this is something else i have these discussions because i work you know i'm a tafe teacher so i work with people we have these discussions people talk about team sports and i always think of a team sport like a soccer team or a football team or a basketball team like a corporate ladder environment team and i find individual sports almost like a entrepreneurship small business yeah where if we have our own little business we we and you're like a single person sport you have a team and that team man you cannot do it without your wife without some of those mentors without some of those training partners i know that if you took sophia which is rob's wife out of rob's life and took you know justin lang justin fitzgerald alex and a few other coaches out of rob's life it's not happening yeah that team is prevalent what i find in the team sports it's it's yeah it is a team sport but your mate next to you is trying to take your position. Yeah. Is trying to climb like that corporate ladder. Yeah. And um, I feel more at home in this team, in the team environment, in that small team where everyone's got a role and it's almost like a small entrepreneur, like a small business, if you will. Yeah, I, no, I, don't know. I, I agree. I, and also over here in that, the little team, the entrepreneurial team, you've got to be proactive. And yeah, in the 100%. team situation, there's always someone telling you where you need to be, what time and... You're just more a freelancer over there, and you have to fill a lot more roles. And yeah, I think I think I'm I'm more suited to that. And I just think to, um, I I did love the camaraderie and and the companionship of the team, but I, I was definitely more suited to to being an individual athlete. Um, so yeah, I, I think one thing I did take from my soccer career, though, I know I, I you know when I think back on my soccer career. Now, I realise I wasn't as good as I thought I was, or I, I you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to fulfil those dreams I had. But the one thing that disappointed me the most was, and and I think it's hard when you're only a teenager, you haven't got life experience. When things got hard, I just, I just, I, I wouldn't say I just, I quit, but I just went back to the the club, the local club team, and that was one thing I was determined in my triathlon career just to be a lot more resilient. And I think. That just comes with experience. I think when you're young and you see other successful athletes or people in business or politicians on TV, you think the tendency is to think, well, I know I thought oh, that person must have always been. He was always a politician. They're always good. They're always yeah. the class captain and then he was the school captain. Now he's a prime minister. And you see someone winning world championships, you think that person's never had a setback in their life. And then when you suffer one yourself as, as a younger person, you think, oh, maybe it's just not destined to be, I'm just not as good, or 
with the benefit of a bit of experience, you realize that, I mean, I love the Federer example. One of his early coaches said he would never be anything better than a slightly above average tour player. He's gone on to be the greatest or one of the greatest of all time. So, you know, again, success is never final. Failure is never fatal. Just because you have a couple of challenges, obstacles, that, that was one thing, you know, when I look back on playing soccer, I thought, you know, as soon as things got tough, I sort of, I didn't circle the wagons. I just, I just went home. And, you know, in my triathlon career, when I started in my early 20s, I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to be a lot more durable. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, wear the knocks and, and take the lumps and just keep pushing forward. But and, I think that triathlon, I, I've done both poorly, so I can tell you this. <laughs> um, triathlon and wrestling, they're sports where, um, they really lend themselves to you just going, mm. and you can get real far in yep. both sports. Yeah, absolutely. Just being tough. like Mental toughness is important. You just got to keep grinding away for sure in triathlon, absolutely. Um, I, I, on, on all of that, I have an interesting question because, um, again, people, you know, when you say, well, we lived four months out of the year in Colorado and this and that. And again, when people hear it or they go like, you know what you should do? And I'm like, yeah, fuck, this will be good. Tell me, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but how, how, can you explain, in it, like, you know, can you explain how how it happened, how you went to Boulder? What, how was Boulder? How did you deal with living there? Was the cost of living there like? Um, the visas that are associated mm. with it. And the reason I'm asking this is not to pry into your life, but it's more like, well, I am prying into your life for the last hour, but... I, I'm, more, I'm more like people don't get that you're not exempt of any of these things. Yeah. It's not like Craig Alexander turns up to Boulder and everyone's like, no. oh, no taxes. <laughs> no. There's no visa problems. It's, it's hard. It's hard work. And once again, I was lucky that my wife took it upon herself to do a lot of the due diligence and the research and just let me train. But so in 2002, when I got the chicken pox, and I'd wanted to go to the Com Games in Manchester, missed out. I had to rehab. I finally got back to training. So I got sick in January. I got back to training maybe April, May. And I, you know, as a professional athlete, I had, to, I had to come up with something to do. So a lot of the people who were going to the Com Games were on what was called the, the ITU World Cup circuit, which is what I had planned to be on that year. And then when it didn't come off, I had to find something else to do. So. I went to the US, which was, you know, at that time, triathlon was, I guess, like golf. Um, the major circuits were in Europe and North America. So I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to go to North America. That was the catalyst, getting sick and missing the Com Games. And then I rehabbed and got healthy. And I thought, well, you know, there's still eight months of this year left. I need to do something. I need to race. I need to make money. So I went to America because they were the races that were well known. And the, and the circuit in the US had been well-established, had been going for 20 or 30 years, big races with good prize money, sponsorship opportunities. So I thought that's where I'm going to go. So I went there. And the first three years we went to America, 02, 03, and 04, we were in San Diego, which was great training and good living too. It reminded me a lot of Sydney, the surfing culture, people were outdoors a lot, pretty laid back, which is different to a lot of the other US cities. San Diego is pretty relaxed compared to a lot of other, other cities over there. And had three great seasons training out of there. A lot of good results. But in 04, I got hit by a car training over there. And I said to my wife, you know, we need to find somewhere quieter. So I had... How bad did you get hit by a car? 
pretty bad. Broke some ribs oh. and yeah. So yeah, this guy just ran straight over me from behind at the traffic lights and um, he was under the influence of marijuana at the time. And anyway, I I was lucky and I thought it's just, it was it had been getting busier and busier there anyway. So I thought I need somewhere a bit quieter where the training's good and having been a student of the sport, I knew that Boulder in the 80s and 90s was where everybody used to go to train. But it sort of, for some reason, had fallen out of favour. And there weren't many athletes up there, triathletes anyway. There was a few runners, a bit of a running community up there, but not many high-level triathletes up there. So I went up there in 05, and um, I had a friend up there training, and I knew the other athletes up there and had an incredible season, won some big races that year. And going to altitude is interesting because some people respond to the altitude and some don't. And I was a responder. I got a lot of benefit out of training at altitude and then coming back to sea level to race. Um, and so from that standpoint, the performance standpoint, it just checked a lot of boxes. The training was amazing. You had a variety of terrain, so you could do a lot of strength work up in the mountains, but you also had farmland out east, so for recovery. You're only 40 minutes from Denver Airport, so you could fly direct anywhere in the world for the for the big races. The town of Boulder itself is, it's a big university town or college town. So when we were there over the summer, there on summer holidays, the, the town, it's, it's like a ghost town. Well, it was when we first went there. It's very busy now, but it was probably the same size as Tamworth, 20,000 20, people. But it's got like 100,000 now, eh? Yeah, it's a big, big, bigger town. So it's grown a lot. It's grown a lot. You still go there? I will be going there in June just for a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I haven't, will be too. Yeah, all right, we should hook up over there. 100%. I'll show you all the haunts. That, that would be awesome, actually. Yeah, no, when in June are you going? I'm going June 8th. I'll be there June 8th to June 25th. Yeah, because Rob fights in 9th of June in Chicago. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that he was fighting Romero again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really, I thought that was in July, early June. Okay. Because we want to set up a base in Boulder, which is another reason that, that I'm asking. Yeah, well, it's a great town. I can tell you it's – I loved it for a lot of reasons – a, the training was amazing. B, my wife loved it, which made it easy, 100%. an easy sell. We made a lot of great friends up there. The living was just easy. It was just easy to train and relax afterwards. It wasn't a big city. It was easy to get around. And like I say, when you're competing and having to travel, it's, it was very easy to access Denver Airport, fly direct to anywhere. Um, and the weather in, in sort of May, June, July when we were there, we were usually there end of May through June, July, August. Just consistent. Didn't have to didn't have to check the weather app. It was just fine and sunny every day. What's it like money wise? Expensive? Yeah, similar to Sydney. Okay. Similar to but Sydney. But not not more than Sydney. No, no. Well what you'll find is uh, renting in that is, is on par. you like what you'd pay four or five hundred, I guess, a week for here, you pay the same there. The cost of living in the US is so much less than here though. Like, I, I am astounded how expensive Australia is. It's crazy, yeah. And I always used to laugh when we'd go over there, we'd do a grocery shop, and then we'd, our first, when we'd get back to Australia, the first shop we'd do, and uh, mate, I, I operate on things like donuts and Snickers. Over there, they're like 49 cents. They're like $3 here. But yeah, everything, milk, petrol. Petrol over there is quarter of the price of here. Yeah. And it's only just, it's gone up a lot. Everyone over there is blowing up because it's double what it used to be when we first went 15 years ago. But it's still quarter of the price of petrol here. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed the living over there, particularly a town like Boulder. It's a real outdoor sort of 
lifestyle town in the summer. Obviously, it's it's very near to to Vale and a lot of the the, the famous ski fields. It's, I think it's only seventy or eighty minutes drive from Vale, and there's a lot of ski fields closer. But when we're there in the summer, it's just a mountain mountain town, and people are hiking and exercising and riding mountain bikes. And it's just a great town, good lifestyle there, and. Um, yeah. How did it work visa-wise? Like, say, for your wife, for instance. Yeah, so what would happen was the first couple of years I had to get what was called a B1, B2, so a business tourist visa. Then when I started getting sponsors, US sponsors, I had to get what was called a P1, professional athletes visa. Okay. So now the way it works is so, so if I went over there to train, I'm allowed to train and race so long as it was only appearance money and prize money, I think that's correct. Because what happens is the US government takes a withholding out anyway. So when I would do a race, for argument's sake, if I won $10,000, yeah. they would withhold their percent, 25% or whatever it was. But then when I'd come back to Australia, I wouldn't have to pay tax on that because you don't double taxation, you don't pay. Um, then what happens, so, so when I was just relying on prize money and appearance fees, I could go in on the B1, B2. As soon as I started getting US sponsors, I had to get what was called a P1, which is a professional athlete's visa. And that's that's quite a it's quite a process to go through. You've got to get an immigration lawyer. But for someone like Rob, for instance, it would be easy because all you need to do He's is He's already got yes, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you would just need to demonstrate that you're a world class athlete or the coach of a world class athlete, which is easy to document and demonstrate through media and, and letters and, and whatnot. And so I would get the P1 and then my family would get a supplement of the P1 called a P4. So I would have to apply and get the visa. And then when I'd get a P1, I could then apply for them to get a P4, which is a supplement of the P1 visa. Oh, but it's punishing because you'd send you the whole process of putting together the dossier. You got your, I got my P1 approved, send off your passport, the visa goes in. Oh, then you'd have to go into the consulate for an interview as well. Once that all happened, then I'd have to, or actually I wouldn't, I'm big noting, my wife would fill out all the paperwork for them. And I'd have to, I'd have to go in and take all their visas in. Um, it was quite an operation, but it's manageable. You just got to do it fairly well in advance of when you travel, that's all. What I like about that, the reason I ask all of that is because, you know, when you say I base myself in wherever, people just go, oh, he just based himself out of there four months out of the year and it's a disservice to the actual amount of sacrifice a lot of work goes and into it and it does not matter who you are like you're not yeah no my wife would always when we'd get home after the race in Hawaii in October she'd always start in November December looking for our accommodation for the next year because um, that would always take a few months and then we'd have to organise a car over there I was sponsored by Toyota for a while so we'd, we'd get a car one time we bought a car over there um, and left it there for a couple of summers with some friends. But yeah, all those little things that you take for granted that you have here. Yeah. I mean, really, you're just trying to set up a home base, a home away from home. So you need all those things to, to get around to training and supermarkets and, and whatnot. And Neri would, Neri would take care of all of that. She was amazing with, we always had great, she'd source out good houses, um, short-term subletting or rentals, um, yeah, so, but yeah, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work and I tried to never take for granted. I was always so just focused on the training and it was all I could do just to get through the, I used to get to the end of every day. Some days I'd, I'd fall on my bed and think, oh shit, I haven't brushed my teeth. And I thought, stuff it, I'm too tired and just go to sleep. So I was just so consumed with the training that I needed someone else. 
And that was a full-time job in itself. I mean, all the things Neri would have to organise, if we rented an unfurnished place, she'd then have to organise to get furniture from our friends or to rent it from somewhere. So there, there was a lot that went into it. And I mean, yeah, when you say you're going to base somewhere, you don't just turn up and they roll out the red carpet. You've got to, you've got to make it happen. So, um, but yeah, Boulder was a great town. You guys will love it there. It's, it's got a nice feel to it. Good, good facilities, um, running tracks, some good high school running tracks, good, good gymnasiums. They've got obviously Colorado universities there so all the facilities the the college system in the US is amazing their schools their colleges are massive and their sporting facilities I mean their their their, their college football stadium there I think seats 50 or 60,000 it's insane uh, eh? it's insane and some some of the college grounds I think the largest I think Michigan or Ohio they have a 110,000 seat stadium so college sports huge over there and because of that and the revenue that it generates the facilities are really good as well so uh, I'm sure that, I know college wrestling over there is massive yeah. I reckon they'd have an unbelievable training facility set up around Colorado University we have a friend of ours uh, Sergio Pena's son he's on a uh, Eduardo Pena he's on a scholarship at one of those universities yep. in Colorado wrestling over there so yep. for the, all those uh, Olympic training centers in Colorado as well Colorado Springs yes that's yeah. about <clears throat> an hour and a bit it's about an hour and 15 minutes it's just south of Denver whereas Boulder's just north yeah so Colorado Springs the U.S. Olympic Training Centers there. Yeah, there's good facilities, really good facilities in and around Colorado. And plus you get, made the, it's just clean, fresh mountain air and it's the altitude. If, if you're someone who responds, I mean, I used to I used to get a, about a 7 or 8% boost in fitness going up there, which is huge. That's massive. Yeah. You know when people say that as well, like I try to explain, I always explain like this to people. If you run a 100-meter race and you beat me by 5%, you beat me for, by 5 meters, say, I'm not in the race. No. Like you got the gold medal and I might not have even I might not have even made the final yeah. with, with five meters. So seven percent is huge. huge. Yeah. I mean I my hematocrit, my red blood cell percentage was like forty one and then I'd go up there and I could get it to forty eight. Just training for four or five weeks up at and one thing I loved about Boulder as well, and this is why I think it's a great training town from just a training perspective, the actual town is at five and a half thousand feet which is about the same height as Threbo about 1800 meters which they say is the minimum yeah the minimum increment of altitude that you need to go to to get a benefit but you can go drive in your car for 20 or 30 minutes and can get up to nine or ten thousand feet to run and ride up there so Where's, what, how high can you sleep because you meant that they reckon train low sleep high is the best thing yeah well you can I, I know I've got a couple of mates over there at the moment they're staying in a town just out of Boulder called Nedland, which is at about just over three thousand meters. Fuck, that's high. Yeah, that's quite high. So you would, oh, you would step up. You would go to Boulder first and settle in. Boulder's uh, still pretty high. It's like sixteen hundred meters. Am I correct? About eighteen hundred, I think. Eighteen hundred that, that, meters. That's high. Yeah, it is. And I think if you, you need to have an adjustment period, you can't just step in. Well, some people can. People who the altitude doesn't affect, they're also the ones who don't get a good benefit from it. They can step straight into altitude and train. I'd always need about seven days where I would just be very aerobic and I'd do I'd do quite a bit of volume in that time but I just wouldn't get the heart rate too high um, because yeah you get I used to get altitude headaches and it's usually the third or fourth day it hits you too you get up there and you think shit I feel great and the first couple of days you smash into it and then the third or fourth day it just lays you low um, so I'd always ease into it some some decent volume but not not so much intensity that first week and then um just business as usual because even at five and a half thousand feet or 1800 meters 
you can still get out the intensity. Well, I could. I could get out the intensity that I would at sea level. Yeah. And that's what I loved about it because it was the minimum increment. So I could get, I'd get the altitude benefit, but I could still smash out the intensity. And if your sport involves explosive power and speed, you need that intensity. You can't be too high. Yeah. We went to um, Falls Creek. Mm. You know, have you ever been there? I have once or twice. Yeah. What is that comparable height? I can't remember. It's about that. It's about sixteen hundred. Yeah, I think Falls Creek from memory is about the same as Threadbay. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, it'd be like just like being in Boulder. It'd be like in Boulder. Yeah. Yeah, and so we didn't notice the difference massively, but and we weren't there long enough. We were yeah. just testing it out. Blah 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 blah. But I think the best thing is going to be to have a base in the US because. If the fights, I say, for example, in Vegas, we want to be able to base those last four weeks at altitude in the US and yeah. just go over to Vegas. Oh man, they, it's we used to have a world championship race in Vegas, the half Ironman Worlds, and I'd always train for for it out of out of Boulder because it's like a sixty minute flight, seventy minute flight from from Denver to yeah, yeah. to Vegas. Very easy, same time zone. So yeah, that, that's a that's a good setup. Hey, do you want any questions, Eli? You have? No, no, I'm good. Um, I want to ask you. are too talkative, right? Eli. Too talkative. Oh, mate, this guy's a machine on this. <laughs> He's a machine. I can't do it. I have, I have two things. I know, I know that you're running out of time, so I have two questions, two things, I suppose, that I like. I think I was talking to Justin. Um, and obviously, and I didn't want to ask this at the start because I don't want to make you sound like a meathead, you know, because you're obviously very meticulous in your preparation. But I think you, you said something to Justin once that I... Um, and I know how Justin is too. We've had Justin on the podcast yeah. and he's he's like really meticulous yep. guy as well. But you said something, and I don't want to misquote you or paraphrase you, but you said something along the lines to him once when that if you're going to do those races, you have to be, correct me, I've, I'm, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but I have since quoted you anyway, so it's <laughs> happy that you've said it, um, that you have to be prepared to run until you're going to pass out, something like that you've said to him? Um, yeah, I... I was always prepared to do I, I always thought that I was prepared enough that that wouldn't happen. I had a couple of incidents in a few races, but that race in Hawaii for me was, it was what the whole year was about. It was what my wife had put her career on hold for. It was what we were homeschooling our eldest daughter for. And I felt that I, I had to go very deep in that race and I was prepared to do it. I was prepared to do it. I don't... I don't know if anyone's, or maybe a couple of people have run so hard they've passed out. I, w- I was prepared to, I think I probably said something along the lines of Justin, that had I, had I passed out, I would have been okay with that. I would, because for me that would have meant that I'd gone deep into the well and, and, and I felt that that was my responsibility to the family after all they'd sacrificed, that two parts, that the first part was I had to leave no stone unturned in the preparation which tied in nicely with my personality anyway. I'm not someone who deals well with regret. So I will plan something well in advance and then I will stick to the plan and I'll add to it if I need to. And I will, like I said to you, I won't trim the corners off. I won't miss extra massage. I won't miss gym sessions. In fact, I'll schedule more. And so that was the first part. And then for me, the second part of that commitment to the family was I've just got to be prepared to, to hurt a little bit and if that means you know I wasn't so tied up with winning or losing I didn't feel like I had to win to repay them I just felt like I had to give my very very best effort and I knew I was so fit I mean there was a couple of times leading up to that race I did some sessions I did a 
in 2009, I did a session three and a half weeks. We got to Kona and it was stupid. I should have never done it. But anyway, it was a very, very long and hard session and it gave me super mental confidence, although it did chip away at my physical conditioning because I got heat stroke. But um, I did this session that I passed out right at the end of it. And I wasn't How all that, many weeks out? It was three and a half weeks out. Okay. And I, I, I rode the course, which was 180 kilometers with a lot of efforts. So I did something like eight by 10 minutes efforts during that ride at, at faster than race pace. And I'd only just arrived if, from altitude the day before. So I hadn't acclimated to the heat and humidity. So I've, I've turned up in Kona, chock full of red blood cells and very fit, but not body not physically prepared to deal with the heat and humidity. So for the first three or four hours, I was just crushing it. The guys I'd set out with, I'd, I'd left them behind, not intentionally. I just felt I was doing it easily. But then my sweat rates and everything slowly caught up with me and he ended up getting heat stroke. Um, and Dave Scott, who I'd been working with, he said to me, I told him about it. He said, you're an idiot that you've just cost yourself the race. I went and had a massage that night with a guy I used to see in Kona who was ma- who'd massage me every day over there. And I didn't tell him, but he, he felt my legs. So what I did was, I did the session, passed out. They put me on this spinal board, because where I passed out, I'd just finished the ride and I'd finished back at the pool, Kona Aquatic Center. And because I passed out, a few people in the car park ran in and got the lifeguards in there and they came out and I woke up, this girl was slapping my face and she was saying, I, You've woken up like that many times, Eli. <laughs> Eli, he, he, can, uh, he can relate. So this, this young girl, this young lifeguard slapping my face and I, I just came to and I heard her say, that looks like the guy who won here last year. And I had one there the year before. I was so embarrassed. So anyway, I, they, they patched me up. I went home and jumped in an ice bath. And stupidly, rather than rest, I was so so driven to just make sure that I did all my sessions I was meant to run off the bike I went and ran I went and jumped in an ice bath for 10 minutes oh after you passed out yeah and then I went and ran and anyway then I had a massage that night so I was all about training hard but trying to recover hard as well so I went and had a massage that night and, and the guy he put one hand he put his hands on my legs and he's like what, what's happened to you today your, your muscles feel like granite and I told him and he just he kicked me out he said get out don't come back you're an idiot You've cost yourself the race. And I actually got a lot of confidence from that because I knew that I'd read somewhere that when you get very, very fit, you pass out like that occasionally. And I had done it a couple of times before. If my wife was here, she'd tell you I've been known to faint at dinners after long training days. And anyway, I just thought, and and this, I guess, and, and you must see this all the time working with athletes. You want to be positive and put a positive spin on things. And, and I just, I wasn't even trying to put a positive spin on it. I actually got off on it. I thought, I'm actually in a position where mentally I'm so motivated for this race. I'm so up for it. I could push myself that hard. Not many, I, I didn't know anyone who could push themselves so hard they could pass out. I mean, I didn't mean to give myself heat stroke. But I think that was the story I was relaying to Justin when I said, yeah, I'm you know, if I pass out in this race, well, and it's a job well done because, you know, um, of course you don't, you don't want that to happen. But I, I do remember going into the race saying to my wife that I'm going to push so hard that, yeah, you know, anything could happen. So, um, 
and that wasn't lip service I, I meant it I thought it was part of my job it was like what I trained to do I, I trained to get myself and it's a it's a it's a fine balance though because you've got to I guess it's like being a fighter you know you're you're trying to mitigate the risk you think you can knock this guy out early but there's a risk if you go for the knockout you leave yourself open so you've got to be a little bit patient as well so it's that fine edge of and i think what you're saying as well like more so it's not just the 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 actual thing it's like the mental thing is like you know you're willing to go to certain to a certain place Hmm. and um those dudes that are fighting because they're fighting for 25 minutes like it's not an iron man but to fight if you have it's a, crazy man, cardio if you, if you have an argument with someone for 25 minutes they fuck up your day man those guys yeah. have crazy crazy cardio 25 minutes that's ridiculous at, at full pelt like that and they're also like up here they're willing to like they're willing to go to some dark places i don't know i'm not a psychologist but like you and if you're like all the stuff that you're saying now if you're gonna if someone's gonna race you and they're not willing to go there and unless they're super gifted, I don't know, they'd have to be, you know, part roadrunner or something, they're not going to win. They're not going to beat yeah. you. But it's like you said before, the top five or eight fighters in the world all have similar skill sets. If you have a great skill set, you're physically trained and your training practices are awesome and you can combine it with that mentality, someone has to match that to, to, be, in, to be in the ballpark with you, for sure. And I just felt it was my responsibility, you know, I... I was well aware of what my family had sacrificed. And I remember my daughter, it was very hard. Homeschooling was very hard for her. And I felt really guilty. I felt I'm the one who's creating what I hope is a great life, but it's also a bit uncomfortable for the family. Yes, we're traveling and that part's wonderful. We always, as a family, we love traveling together, but it wasn't without its challenges. I knew my wife missed her career and I knew my daughter missed all her friends at school and homeschooling was really hard for her. So I thought, you know, I have to, make sure I, I put in the best effort and just to to honor their sacrifice and to, and to thank them for their for what they've sacrificed awesome i don't want to take too much of your time we spoke earlier um just want to say a massive thank you for coming yeah. i know you just swam 5ks what's on the rest of the day i'm going to get home hop on the indoor bike trainer and then i'm, I'm running track tonight at sylvania how long's your indoor bike it'll be just 60 minutes 60 minutes so i had an easy easy run this morning thursday's one of my bigger days of the week these days easy run swim oh, so you ran already too just an easy easy 40 minutes this morning yep you did 40 minutes swam five how uh, far do you run in those 40 minutes i did about eight and a half k so it's just an aerobic about five five and just under five minute per k and yep. then you did 5k swimming 5k and yep you drove out here Drove out here. Did your podcast? Did the podcast with you boys. Driving. Drive home, hop in the garage. Which for anyone that doesn't know, it's like an hour drive home. Yeah. Yeah. Get on get on the indoor bike trainer. Um, as I said to you before, I, before we came on air, I was on there last night and I saw they were replaying Rob's fight with Romero. That'd be a cracker in June. Oh, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. But, but then you've got another run today. Yeah, tonight I do. Well, normally my, my family are away at the moment. Um coming home tomorrow but normally my daughter runs track on thursday nights at sylvania and i normally take her and there's a there's an old man's race a master's race so i'll jump into that one tonight it's five, 5k it's 5k 5k run that's solid i feel like i gotta go for a run <laughs> it's, a, it's a solid thursday that's a it's a good thursday yeah just another day i love it what can i say it's training's part of my life i don't 
I certainly don't train as much or as hard as I used to, but it makes me feel good. I think it makes me a better person to be around when I train. And, um, you know, the sport's given me a lot. I, the sport owes me nothing. I owe it so much. And uh, I, I, I love being in and around it. I, like I said, I don't race as often as I used to, but when I get the chance, I, you know, I know the performance that I want to deliver, so I train to, to try and deliver that performance. Is there anything, anyone you want to shout out? Anything, any business ventures that you have going on at the moment? I know you're coaching too now. Yeah, I got, got a little coaching business called Sanzigo. So I've been lucky in my, my long time in the sport to come across a lot of the best coaches, endurance and triathlon coaches in the world. And so I've partnered up with some of them. We've got a little online community and yeah, a few other things. I'm still very lucky. I've got 12 or 13 great sponsors. So a lot of my travel these days is just promotional work for them. Um, you know, they were always very supportive when I was racing and would let me prepare the right way. So now I, I'm sort of trying to pay them back and, you know, get to around to all the expos and the photo shoots and the things that, you know, they want to do to leverage the relationships. So, yeah, I'm busy. Um, but, yeah, no, no, no shout outs other than to, to Justin for, at Live Athletic for doing the intro and, and getting me on with you guys. And, the only shout out really is to, to my wife and to the family for their support. I mean, that, that's why I'm here. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming out today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Fab. Thanks for having me.